Welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today we have Max Botin, who I've known for seven or eight years. He's a VC here in Cambridge. And I'll let Max introduce himself from where you think you were born in Siberia, weren't you? Yes, I grew up in Siberia in a family of scientists in a little scientific town that was, it's not, it's not unlike CERN and Switzerland, actually, in many ways. And that was great childhood, good schools, and I think it set me up well for continued education. I was lucky to win the scholarship to go to Maryland, and then after a few years in telecoms, I came to Cambridge to do my MBA at the Judge. September 2000, it was, I arrived, mm-hmm. which was, of course, a very, very exciting time from the Czech perspective. Not unlike now, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so you did your MBA, and had you got a plan for what to do post-MBA? No, no, I had no idea, actually. I was thinking that I'd probably go back to my job doing kind of private equity investing in, in telecoms, which was good fun. But I bumped into Nigel Brown of NW Brown Group. He was a guest speaker at the MBA, and we quickly discovered that both of us had interest in motorbikes. As you do as well, of course. And that's why we talked and uh, Nigel invited me to come to a race, which I duly did. And from that, we started talking about the summer project. And then we started talking about the job. And that's how I ended up in Cambridge. And, you know, 20 years on, I'm still here. So uh, it was serendipity, uh, actually, yes. more than anything else. So you joined NW Brand doing what to start with? They are an asset manager, a traditional asset manager and a financial services company. But at the time, they had just started two years ago experimenting with arranging deals for the business angels. So they set up a business angel network called the Great Eastern Investment Forum. And they also had a VC fund on the side. And they were starting to think about creating a seed investment vehicle for the angel co-investments. And that's what I ended up doing for a few years. And then we had a you know, a university challenge fund to that, investing in university spin-offs. But it all started with seed investing, and that's, I guess, where I cut my teeth back then. Predominantly, it was government money as well, actually, what is now the British Business Bank seeded a few entities to co-invest with angels, and that's when I started making co-investments with the Great Eastern Group, and then eventually also the Cambridge Angels when it was formed. I think we did a few sort of joint deals together. And that took us naturally to the time when the market settled down because, you know, it was 2001 mm. and so on. So it was, it was a tough time to start. Whose capital were you using at that point? To be honest, actually, all of the investment funds were 100% government grants. Okay. Both the challenge fund for the university and the seed co-investment funds were all, as funds, government-backed, but they were co-investing with the angels. Yep. So it was always very much commercial entity that was trying to create, prove that returns can be made making seed investments. It was actually a very good learning ground because a lot of the investments at the time did not make any money. Is there a generic reason why? I think there's lots of reasons. A lot of the companies did not find the right product market fit. Some of the companies ended up not being adequately financed. Some of them have succeeded, but we haven't necessarily retained. We were diluted at later stages because we couldn't invest more than half a million per company. So it meant that 
you know, some of them are still going, like, you know, companies like Revu, for example, is one of investees for oh, Daniel Apps and Summit Group, which is now listed, is still holding Yes, That's one of the transactions that we met, MD Philips. And we had a few exits, some of them quite successful, but the seed fund barely managed to return its capital, which at the time was, I think, a, a big achievement, to be honest. But it also lost 70-80% of its businesses. And that's when the investment thesis started to come about and that we realized that the concept of just making co-investments with angels is not really good enough. You know, the angels come in all shapes and sizes. And what really makes companies strong is when you get an angel who is an ex-entrepreneur and deploys capital. And that's how the investment strategy of IQ Capital One was born in that we realized that if we were to focus early stage investments on situations where we can either go alongside or bring in an ex-entrepreneur who has already built a successful business in a particular vertical, then our chances for success will be much greater. So when did you realize this? So you started investing in 01, say. Probably all two, actually. So Soon two as to that. one, yeah. yeah. That's quick because you hadn't had many failures by that point, had you? That's when we started investing in the seed. Yeah. And sort of 2002 to 2006 was the period where I was doing the seed investments mm. and kind of getting the learnings. And, and that's when a lot of the, I think I, I probably did something like 30 investments in those few years in total. And I would say that a good 50% of them did not make it. And then even in those three or four years. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So it's a very different ecosystem to now as well, because Finding follow-on investors was just so much tougher. There was simply not enough money to pick up those companies. You had to be an absolute star to be able to make it onto the radar. And that's when I actually met my partners, Ed and Kerry, because they started off in the 90s. Ed was head of due diligence at Generics. Scientific Generics, which is a local consulting IP generation company. Exactly. And... He worked with a number of investors, and one of them, a family office, decided to back setting up a venture fund, and that's how Venture Technologies was born, one of the first pure tech VCs, and they had a number of very successful investments there. They gave autonomy their first million. They had companies like uh, Dulacker and KVS. They sold to Sun Microsystems and Yahoo!, so, you know, they had $3 billion companies in the fund back then. So that one was a good return. And then we did a few deals together at seed stage and got to know each other. And we're all very different, actually. So Ed is very, very technical, but strategically technical. He understands tech, but he understands where tech can be applied and where it's going as well. Kerry is very market-focused. She's good at asking the question of, What's the product market fit? And, you know, I understand the tech thingamajigs, but where's the big, mm. big green button to press on as a customer? And team building as well, she's fantastic at. Whereas I'm a bit more kind of finance, negotiating M&A exits, operations. So that gave us comfort to actually set up a firm together. And that's how IQ Capital was born. So we left NW Brown and IQ Capital raised its first fund, which was 25 million. And these days we often get the question as to why would you even bother? But back then it was a huge amount of money, and or it seemed so. And two thirds uh, was government. And one two third. thirds was government or, you know, again, the British Business Bank. 
That was a much better idea. By then, it wasn't even the British Business Bank, it was the predecessor capital for enterprise, but they had experimented quite a bit in terms of so-called state interventions with things that work and things that don't, and they realized that the best way to do is to excite the private capital to drive the allocations. And leverage it. And and leverage it. So the concept behind the enterprise capital funds was, and still is, it's a program that is still very active, and I think it's brilliant, was to say one of the objectives is to help emerging managers raise their first fund. And we are prepared to give as much as two-thirds of that capital. And we are going to incentivize the private investors by essentially doubling their upside. Mm. But it comes at a cost of potentially slightly higher downside. Not hugely higher, but slightly higher downside. Because essentially the investors preference equity with a 3% dividend. Yeah. So clearly if the fund does better than 3%, then there's a, or 5% at the time. And that fund has done well for us. You know, we, we had to raise the eight and a half million from the private investors. And again, that was actually, I think we ended up having 40 investors there, all of which were technology entrepreneurs or angel investors. So we actually, we were very lucky in that we had a group of investors who were not just money, but they were also bringing deals to us. They bought into the concept of what the fund was trying to do, which is to follow the experienced entrepreneur in the technology investments and that was fairly broadly defined as to what fields we would invest in and seed and series a was always the focus so i think our smallest check in that fund was uh, to start with probably a couple hundred thousand and but we have gone as high as over a million in fact two million was the largest initial investment in terms of the investors i think the largest investor was one million and the smallest investor was 50,000. So yeah. we had a big range there. The fund was November 2006 start, mm-hmm. although the first investment was made in 2007. And then we made three or four investments and then 2008 happened. In fact, actually maybe five or six investments. And one or two of our companies were caught into that mm-hmm. abyss actually, failed, which, which yeah. I think they would have good investments, which would have made it had it not been for 2009 really more than anything else. Because Corporates have stopped buying technology mm. and all of a sudden, so the equity markets dried up, uh, raising capital became much harder, but also securing corporate contracts has become much harder too. It meant that we had a few failures, but we also had a whole bunch of successes. So we got a lot of stakes. We sold the company to Apple, we sold the company to Google, we sold the company to Huawei. Uh, Backton Dickinson uh, with Sirigen was a great exit. And in fact, we have just done the biggest exit from that fund, Grapeshot, to Oracle a week ago, and that alone paid the whole fund two times. This is 12 years later, of course, isn't it? So that's a longish journey. Well, the thing is that you have to remember that in a venture fund, the capital is committed and not invested. So you have five years to actually make those investments mm-hmm. initially, and then there's follow-on capital. So the duration of capital, as they call it, is less. So from the day that we take a pound from an investor and invest in the company and then return the capital back, you know, it's the usual sort of four to maybe seven years, whatever the company really takes. So there's no difference to investing in that business directly or investing through a venture fund in terms of cash flows. Mm. But yes, if you look at the start to finish, and you know, Grapeshot, we invested in 2009. So it, it still took a good, you know, almost, well, nine years to get to this outcome. So on the back of those successes in Fund 1, 
we raised fund two, which was double the size. And that was in December 2014 was when we started investing. And this time around, things accelerated and went much smoother. So we've made 22 investments out of that fund. Also in seed and series A, learned a few lessons. So we stopped investing in consumer tech. We became much more deep tech focused as an investor. So we like investing in companies that have some proprietary innovative elements at the core, especially in software space. One of our key tasks is if you can rebuild the product in 12 months with 50 people in India, then probably it's a bit too simple. Mm. Ultimately, what we're trying to achieve is situations where there's some secret source, be it machine learning or other algorithmically driven, or it's complicated connectivity to the rest of the world, where it's much more difficult to displace it. And we can then find a big vertical where if the company is successful, then it becomes absolutely huge. And if it doesn't, typically you have a corporate to buy that company as well because of the technology and because of the upside that they can get from the integration into their own value chains. Because, of course, the latter is much simpler than the former, which is building an independent company. And which is probably 10x less valuable, possibly. Uh, and genuinely 10x less valuable. Mm. So, you know, there are some nearer trade-offs because, of course, those technology exits happen much earlier in life than the business exits that take a few years to achieve. But nonetheless, yes, obviously selling it as a tech is typically not as lucrative. However, it's much more lucrative than losing the business altogether. Mm. Uh, and I think increasingly we see that plan B as a corporate tech sale as being quite realistic and very achievable path for a lot of these businesses. And we've had a few of those in our portfolio. But equally, the journey towards scaling revenues and scaling the business is taking much less time than it used to. We think that the ecosystem has actually moved on a great deal. Now in Cambridge in particular, we have entrepreneurs and management teams that have been around the block a few times. They've been to the Valley often, come back. They've had experiences of starting and scaling businesses. Some of them have come back from the corporate sector with the experiences that are often quite relevant too. And what we see is some of the companies in the current portfolio that have gotten to multi-million revenues within two or three years. And when they say multi-million, it's not one or two, it's five to 20 million in revenues. Mm. These businesses now take three years to get to versus six years to get to before. And that for an investor, it makes a big difference because the amount of capital you spend per annum is not really that much different. We spend more and companies accelerate faster, but you get the proof points much earlier. You have the confidence, you have the market as well, which is starting to be very active. So most of the investment rounds in the businesses that we have have been oversubscribed many times. So all of a sudden you have more experience, more money and better opportunities globally and better understanding of how to address them. And I think it's starting to combine into a much more attractive story where we see these businesses produced successfully much more systematically than ever before. So we think overall the point is that corporates are much happier buying from startups. In fact, they feel that if they don't, they are disadvantaged and they're all much keener on buying products from startup and also buying the startups, mm. which of course for us is great news. So we've talked about some great successes. Let's talk about some failures, not necessarily naming them, but some so that the audience can understand what can go wrong. 
You know, companies fail in multiple ways. I think in terms of the learnings, there is one or two that are quite uncommon. For example, we haven't seen many technology failures where technology or product has not worked, mm. ironically, even though it's the core of those businesses. I think where it fails most typically is companies that fail with the product market fit, i.e. whatever has been built is built in a way that the market doesn't want. And I think historically Cambridge was great at doing that, you know, over-engineering products and spending all the money on the engineering side of things to then realize that the market doesn't quite want it. Or even in comparative terms, you look at the sort of Selexa and um, gene sequencing story and how Selexa has built an amazing technology where Illumina that was developing in parallel was in a better position to acquire it because by the time that they built the jack, they still didn't have the product to sell. And, you know, it was a great billion dollar exit, you know, by the time that the shares were sold and everything else. But Illumina became a $30 billion company. And I think Cambridge is learning to do that better. And that's great to see that. But, you know, there were some outrageous stories. So some of the instances where people can be a very common reason for failure. Obviously, execution is an important element. And it's not even binary because you don't need to fail. Failure could be executing too slowly because, of course, time is money for startups. Mm. But it's been even more dramatic than that. We had a situation in the company where the CEO, a bit of a diva CEO, I should say, one day just threw the toys out of the pram and disappeared with all the codes, all the access passwords to company bank accounts, all the keys physically from the office and could not be reached for two weeks. He or she was a single founder? or He was a single founder, yes. That business never managed to recover after that. I mean, genuinely speaking, I think situations where founders have to be replaced is a situation where you might as well walk away because it's incredibly rare that you're augmenting founder teams is possible. Replacing founders, in our experience... If they've disappeared completely, if they're willing to move aside, and there's plenty exactly. of examples of those, aren't Absolutely. there? Where they become chief product officer, like William Tunstall Pedo, exactly. or chief CTO, or whatever. And often that's where their heart lies, and they're quite happy to say, you know what, as far as fundraising or strategy forming is concerned, I'm happy for somebody else who comes in and does that. But losing founders altogether, you just lose that soul of the business. Which is a good reason not to invest in sole founders, potentially, because at least if there's one left or two left, could it then survive? Well, you know, there's different schools on that. I think, genuinely speaking, people say that they prefer to invest in situations where there's two or three founders. But I think there needs to be the core team, which is several people. Whether or not all of them are called founders is Mm. a different matter. Okay. There were one or two situations where follow-on funding was simply not there and the companies were squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. One business had the tax breaks pull out from it because when they introduced the seven-year criteria, then all of a sudden businesses that relied on raising capital from individuals or EIS funds or whatnot could not do it anymore. And all of a sudden, you know, the grown-up world was a little bit too unfriendly for them. So that was a regulatory change that they couldn't have foreseen, yes. You know, it's fair enough. But I think the thing is that you do expect to lose 30% of your capital Mm. in making VC investments, even though, as of late, the portfolio seems to be doing a lot better than that. But historically, it's a reasonable threshold. Uh, So failure is normal. What's not normal, and where I I think we blame ourselves is situations where companies fail with a big chunk investment from the fund. 
we have learned to be quite strict and say, you know what, if it hasn't worked, then it hasn't worked. Mm. And one needs to be quite firm. Ultimately, investors are prepared to overlook just about anything for the right business. Mm. So the non-participation of the existing investors is only an issue when those investors are significant parts of the earlier syndicate and the business is not doing great for whatever reason. I mean, but, you know, we have created nominee vehicles where if companies prefer not to have us as a seed investor on the shareholder register for that reason, we appreciate that that could be a trade-off, you know, and not a lot of entrepreneurs do actually, but we're quite explicit about it, that, you know, it's great to have an institutional investor early on, but it could be a bit of a message if we decide not to support, and we have a million reasons. Ultimately, we expect to only invest in a you know, probably 50% of businesses that we support at seed stage get a serious A check from us. Yeah, yeah. So what's the maximum percentage shareholding do you feel comfortable with in any one investment? Generally, we wouldn't go above 30%. And quite frankly, in the current market, it's virtually impossible to go anywhere near that. Because of the availability of capital? Well, because of the size of the fund that we are and because of how we operate at seed stage, we wouldn't want to take a big chunk of the round because you would be displacing our syndicate partners like Cambridge Angels, and you wouldn't want to do that. Of course, beyond the Series A, the story is a little bit different because your capital in the company is already much greater. Uh, follow-on investment is typically a much more sensible choice, whereas at seed, it's a bit more binary. You know, you, you, you don't have much of a stake, so therefore pro rata, investing pro rata in the follow-on round doesn't necessarily make as much sense. But the economics of venture investing is quite interesting if you really dig into that and into kind of the models and ratios. And what we increasingly see is that, yes, it's important to be very disciplined and not end up with losses which are too high. Equally, having the capital to back the big winners in big ways, because often, even as valuations grow, the later rounds still produce huge returns, certainly in, in kind of risk-adjusted basis and IRR basis. And also it helps to have uh, big fund returners, the dragons as they're mm. called, in your portfolio. Because if you have one or two of those, then the rest becomes easier. Of course, investors are looking for returns above 3x on the whole fund basis. And delivering those, given that some of the companies will be losses, is not that easy, actually. And then there's, of course, the overheads of the fund and so on. So having one or two fund returners, and you don't need to have, actually, this, that's another favorite topic uh, in the sense, because everyone talks about unicorns these days. Mm-hmm. And if you're not a unicorn, it's just like, you know, well, Grapeshot was not a unicorn, but it still delivered a fantastic multiple of our funds. And that's what you want to see, ideally. If you have a multi-hundred million dollar exit, that should generate enough of a return to pay the whole fund. Mm. And that one really starts to make the rest of the journey much easier. And that isn't necessarily a unicorn, clearly. No, no. And because it's about capital efficiency. Mm. Ultimately, that's what it is about. What is the multiple on the capital Mm. that the company raises? And, you know, having a 20x multiple on the total capital raised plus is the sort of thing that helps to return the funds because, and, and in billion dollar unicorns, you often have those companies raising three, four, five hundred thousand. So you look at it, hundred million. Yeah. So you look at it and it's a three times multiple on the mm-hmm. capital. But and of course you need to remember that there's also the management team with the participation and everything else. So if a company that has raised 300 million gets sold for a billion, I mean, it's a three X return. 
And of course, liquidation preferences of various sorts with Uber, you know, has this big number. But if you took the liquidation preference waterfall into account, who knows what the return would be? Could be quite small for the early shareholders. Yes, exactly. And that's where being an early investor can often be a bit difficult because on one hand, these days, the equity journey tends to be going from, you know, small numbers into bigger numbers. Mm -hmm. So the price per share grows. But do you see a liquidation preference and other bells and whistles later down the line that essentially mean that not as much of the waterfall reaches the early stage investors? Thankfully, we see less and less of that. Certainly, we would only invest in instruments that have a non-participating liquidation mm-hmm. preference. So it's binary. You know, you can either have the 1x or you can participate in the prorata. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the olden days, it was... Both. was both and, exactly. and the multiple so, uh, beyond one and liquidation you know, double bite of the cherry exactly I do know a founder who will remain completely nameless who had a nine digit exit in dollars who ended up with nothing because the preference stack just worked in such a way the ordinaries disappeared we've had a situation in our portfolio where it wasn't a huge exit it was several tons of million but because of the capital raised and the various liquidation stacks and so on it meant that the team was only making maybe closer to 10% of the proceeds. And then they made a passionate course saying, look, you know, we need to have more. And, and there was a reshuffle just before the exit. Yeah. You know, some people felt that it was unfair, but the reality is that, you know, it's a journey and no one knows what that journey leads at the beginning. But if the team has things to deliver, the investors have things to deliver, and one needs to be focused on being equitable. And mm. you can't be dogmatic and say, this is what the agreement says, and that's it, full stop. I'm not going to hear anything else. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, your friend should have perhaps been a bit tougher with his investors at the time. Yes, <laughs> that's another story. So in terms of tips for entrepreneurs, let's talk about how entrepreneurs should manage VC money. Well, again, there's different ways of approaching it, and <laughs> maybe different schools. Some entrepreneurs prefer to have a single VC backing the deal. Some feel that having, you know, two is better. I think any more than three, you're already starting to be in a situation where herding the cats is quite tough because inevitably VCs have different maturities of funds, different fund sizes, different approach to investments, clearly different personalities. And the one thing that you cannot change about your company is your shareholders, uh, especially (laughs) if they're VCs. So one has to be very disciplined in terms of understanding what kind of investor you are bringing and what they will actually do for the company. And most VCs will say that they will do a lot and a lot of them are not actually able to do quite as much as they say they would. And of course, each VC will want a board position, so you could soon get the board dominated by the money men, potentially. Which again, I mean, US-style boards, you only have the chairman, the CEO, and then maybe two or three investors. Mm. And that actually works okay because then the other people can report to the board, but the board is genuinely focused on the strategic and finance issues, and that can be fine. But where it does become harder is when, A, either the personalities of the co-investors don't work very well, or the profiles don't work. And actually... It's really the VCs that should know better because they, of course, have much more experience of the market and working with each other. But I think for the entrepreneur, it's important to do their diligence as well and figure out whether one VC would be compatible. Fund size, where is the VC in the fund maturity? Because 
uh, we see that investing in the first year of their fund and we see that invest in the fifth year of their fund would be on a different time flow, time expectation. Ability to follow on capital is what matters. Having a strong chairman with prior experience of working with VCs who is able to say, you know what, you're going and opening that door for me and you're going and doing this. And by the way, in the next funding round, this is how the allocations would look like and sort of is able to control that situation. But when you have one VC, of course, it becomes a bit easier. Two is generating a good amount of balance. And I think by Series B, that's probably a natural position to have at least two VCs. But, you know, now there's a lot more of a choice. I remember, you know, years ago, there was always this, no matter who you speak to, there was always this point about, you know, what you should be looking in your VC and what you can do. And I always listened to it and I was just like, just come on, you know, I mean, some of these companies would just need capital, you know, and they only have one choice at best. So what are they going to choose not to take it and die otherwise? But these days there is a lot more choice. And I think doing the homework and doing the due diligence on your AVC and not being lazy, not being lazy to call the portfolio companies and understand how they operate, what they actually bring to the deals, mm. what sort of personalities they are, because a very different management styles to the SVCs that come into the room and kind of bang on the table and demand that the numbers are met and are very... Yeah, I probably told you before, I had sacked a VC before they invested it in his own office. A guy that you actually know, so we won't mention this on this podcast, but I know exactly what you mean, doing the due diligence. Can we just move on to corporate VCs? Yeah. So you won't know, but I'm a small investor in an organization that trades as global corporate venturing. So this is the main database of corporate VCs. Yeah. What's your feeling about you know getting investments and how they can add and detract value? I think that, again, over the years, there's been a debate going on whether having a corporate VC in a company is a good or a bad thing. And corporate VCs always felt that they're just about as good or better than the normal VCs and the normal VCs felt otherwise. Now, I think there's much more convergence. There's an understanding that corporate VCs could be quite helpful, certainly in terms of opening doors within their own organizations and getting a lot more strategic alignment. And having early customers, of course, is incredibly important. It's useful not to have one, but rather having two or three so that there's a natural balancing out and hopefully having them for fairly small checks so that there isn't the kind of the tail wagging the dog situation. And thirdly, most corporate VCs do have the sort of double, triple bottom line type of approach where they only invest in sectors which are strategically important for companies. I think increasingly they're not even asking for things like preferences on sale and so on. And of course, it's incredibly important not to give it because I think the market has accepted that having a corporate VC does not mean that they are the natural bidder for that business. And I think that's the important thing. So I think corporate VCs have become increasingly relevant and the market at large is much more relaxed about having that capital and we have had it in a number of our portfolio companies and I think it works incredibly well. Yeah, I mean, there's a figure floating around. I think that 17% of all corporate VCs exit to the corporate, only 17%, so 83% of exits are not to that corporate. So there isn't the danger that people used to worry about that the only way out is to that corporate, that one of the competitors may buy them. Absolutely. They started behaving much more as financial, but they can go beyond that and add some value through helping on the revenue side. And then finally, as we exit this podcast in a few moments, let's talk about exits. Well, there are more of them. And the great thing is also that there's more 
types. Again, for the last 10 years, M&A was essentially the only exit, realistic exit route that one would have. But on the M&A side, there's a lot more corporates that are acquisitive, the multiples are higher, there's better choices, there's better ways of playing one corporate acquirer against another, which I suggest is always something that companies should try to engineer because corporates try to avoid that situation understandably and they use all sorts of very clever tricks to do that. But there's also the likes of later stage funds. So the secondary purchases that were unheard of for many years are now back and they're back at strength. We have seen offers for our companies where not even for 100%, but sometimes 30, 40, 50, 60% capital replacement offer from essentially private equity growth firms that are prepared to pay multiples, which are very close to what the strategics would pay. Mm. And that, of course, often creates a great opportunity for the earlier stage investors to exit prior to the master exit that might take many more years to achieve. Including one in Cambridge where the angels exited a 7x and the VC eventually went bust. I don't know if you know that story, but we won't name it. Exactly. I mean, the thing is that you can have situations where even at later stages, there's still ongoing risks with the company. And sometimes taking that early exit is not a bad thing, especially if you can take it at a price which is demonstrably comparable to what you would get if you were selling the whole business outright. Mm. And then increasingly also alternative models. So I think IPOs are coming back. You know, NASDAQ First North is starting to be quite material. The the Swedish is becoming more liquid. AIM, I think I'm not really quite certain that is changing quickly enough. But, you know, there's more options for companies to list. But there's also companies like New platforms that essentially enable liquidity for businesses like Thunderbeam that, you know, they're only starting to pick up, but the opportunity for liquidity prior to the actual exit, where they help shareholders exchange and sell and buy shares, you know, in exactly the same sort of way that stock exchanges would, is also increasingly relevant and hopefully will help earlier stage investors to recycle their capital quicker, which ultimately will mean that we'll be able to back more businesses. Yeah. So I'm quite excited about where things are going in general. And you know, while people sometimes argue uh, and ask whether the prices are a bit too high, I'm not sure they are. A lot of these businesses are generating uh, numbers which fully justify the multiples that they achieve. Some don't. There will always be speculation, there will always be irrational exuberance of this market. It's part of it. And it will swing from too positive to too negative every now and then. Again, that's part of the technology development cycle. Mm. But overall, I think we're in a very strong place and I expect a lot of great things from the tech. Long may it continue. So final question to you, Max, which you're not expecting. I'm about 20 years older than you. What are you going to do when you get to my age? You know what, I've been asking myself that question. I've been privileged to work with many angel investors who have created a lot of wealth for themselves. And after taking a few months off, I tend to see these people back investing in the companies as angels. And I suspect that that's probably where I will end up, you know, in my more senior years. 
We'll see. I think it would be good to spend a bit more time, you know, with my hobbies. I do a lot of interesting stuff, which of course I don't have time for because of work. And you have one or two children, have you? Just one. And again, maybe that will change in the future. But it's something that, of course, is incredibly rewarding and takes time too. So maybe you should be retiring soon and therefore you can spend more time with your child or children. I don't think that that would work for me. (laughs) Uh, I'm just enjoying this too much. Excellent, Max. That was really enjoyable. I've learned so much, as always, when I spend time with you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor.